Hello and welcome. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org. We continue our podcasts about the war which Russia started uh, against Ukraine. This series is brought to you by Internews Ukraine and Ukraine Crisis Media Center, two Ukrainian media NGOs. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I am editor-in-chief of ukraineworld.org. We are making this podcast with Tetyana Oharkov, who is in charge of international outreach of Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Hello, Tanya. Hello. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Ukraine World. As you can see, uh, if you listen to our podcast, we try to balance between reporting about the hot events, the tragic events of this war of Russian invasion of Ukraine and some background stories, background uh, analysis. And today we are going to talk with you about Ukrainian culture. Uh, why it is important? Because Russian propaganda tells you all the time, all this years and decades that Ukraine doesn't exist, that Ukraine is, Ukrainians are the same nation with Russians, that Ukrainian language is the same as Russian, and all this of course lies. So we, we will try to make an overview and to make a conversation about 10 things you should probably know about Ukrainian culture. Yes, indeed. And in a way, then it's our answer to the question what we are fighting for, because uh, given answer to a question what Ukraine is, when what Ukrainian culture is, it's also given answer to a question why we are fighting against Russia and why we do have our own identity, our own history, language, religion, and many other things. So they are available for us, and that's why this talk is important for us. So the first thing, of course, is language, uh, because when Russians are saying that Ukrainians and Russians are the same nation. You can just ask a, a Russian citizen to listen to Ukrainian TV stations or news uh, broadcast and ask them if they understand Ukrainian language. And uh, most probably they will say no, uh, because Ukrainian language and Russian language are totally different. Uh, of course, they're, they, they are close because it's the same Eastern Slavic group but uh, with Belarusian, Russian, and Ukrainian. But for you to give an idea, it's probably the same as French and Italian, or Italian and Spanish. Uh, mm. So, of course, this the same Latin group, but uh, not necessarily a French speaker will understand Italian speaker. Well, uh, maybe we can compare the, the level of proximity of Ukrainian and Polish. They're quite mu much more close, or, or Ukrainian and Belarusian. When we, for example, I don't know Belarusian, Belarusian language, but when the Belarusians speak, uh, I do understand most of the, what, what maybe in 80% of what they're saying. So on, on the level of lexics, uh, the two languages are quite distinguished and quite different. And that's why we, it, it, it can sound something... Uh, surprising for Ukrainians because uh, most of Ukrainians they do understand Russian we are almost all population is bilingual so in a way we do understand Russian um, independently over the age so our parents but our generation and our kids as well uh, everybody understands Russian but we also understand the Ukrainian and we were surprised I do remember several situations when we asked our Russian friends at that time uh, if they understood what we are talking about in Ukrainian and the answer was no really no And indeed, in lexics, in, in, in words, uh, Ukrainian is, uh, have more common lexics with Belarusian and with Polish than with Russian. Uh, with, in some other aspects, uh, it's, it, it might be different. But, uh, and, but, but it's important to note, right? And it's also important to understand that there is a huge, uh, huge, bar, uh, huge uh, 
amount of Ukrainian literature, Ukrainian fiction, non-fiction in Ukrainian language, which basically was forming in uh, early 19th century, the written uh, Ukrainian literature in the Ukrainian language. But it's also very interesting to see Ukrainian literature pre-19th century, which which could be in Latin, which could be in Polish, which can be in um, uh, Old Slavonic uh, or any other languages. So it's also interesting to see this, uh, you know, this uh, in total. Another important story is the story of bands of the Russian Empire. Specifically, there were a lot of bands of Ukrainian language because they, they, und- un- they understood from the very beginning that language question is important. Um, let us uh, talk maybe about Yemsky. Um, as the uh, Ems, Ems, uh, decree, yes. decree, decree, which banned Ukrainian from public use in schools, uh, whatever. Um, and it, it uh, was in eighteen seventy-six. Seventy-six, yeah, exactly. There were several others. So um, this story, this story is really serious, and it is a political one because Russians and Russian Empire in nineteenth century they understood quite clearly that language identity is important. And uh, what they were also doing, and we'll talk about that later in this um, during our conversation is that they were trying to appropriate people coming from Ukraine, having Ukrainian background, but they, who switched to Russian language in, in one point of their careers, like, for example, Mikola Gogol. Or, or even Malevich or some other people who were who were just who were grasping talents, if you wish, from from Ukrainian from Ukraine and presenting them later as Russian artists or Russian writers or or whatever. Yeah, we have the very big story of this expropriation of Ukrainian culture by the Russian culture. Uh, unfortunately, so in the 19th century, it was a tactics of uh, language ban starting from the uh, Valuev Circular in, this, in the 60s, which was kind of a reaction to Ukrainian national movement and Polish national movement in Russian Empire. And as you say, Ems decree in the 70s. So almost half of the century Ukrainian language was banned in the Russian Empire. In the Soviet Union, the situation was visibly better um, because Ukrainian language was allowed. But there was this uh, politics, long, long policy of what Ukrainian scholars are calling linguocide, when the two languages were artificially brought, you know, approximate to each other, harmonized, so to say, meaning that Ukrainian language was stripped of its lexics, of its, you know, phraseology, uh, many, many peculiar things, and brought uh, closer to to Russian. So uh, just to give you an idea what is going on today, today we are experiencing a renaissance of the Ukrainian language, and Ukrainian state uh, was tr- has been trying not to marginalize the Russian, one, uh, the Russian language, as uh, Russian propaganda is saying, but to promote the Ukrainian language, to give more quotas for Ukrainian products in music, in cinema, in books, etc. And we see lots of uh, many, many people who are, you know, shifting to Ukrainian language. Our example is a typical example because we were brought as Russian speakers and now we are Ukrainian speakers with our family. Uh, I think we will uh, consecrate another specific episode of our podcast to the language issue because it's very important. Let's move forward because we will try now to be as brief as possible. 
Religion, very important thing. Mm-hmm. So, so on one hand, we see that uh, religion in Ukraine is Orthodox religion, so in a way it's close to Russia. And for Russian Federation, now it's kind of a strong point saying that this is the same face, it is the same religion. So we are to defend people who, are, who, have, who have the same face as we do. And um, so the question is, and we have problems explaining abroad why what's the difference between between religion uh, religious issues in Ukraine and in Russia so the orthodoxy Ukrainian orthodoxy has been different from the Russian orthodox church it was always much more closer to to the west for example to constantinople or to catholic or even protestant influences it's important to understand that one of the very important epochs in Ukrainian history the baroque Uh, Kiev Baroque, uh, this uh, Mohila Academy where we teach with Tetiana, uh, the oldest university in in Eastern Europe, founded in the 17th century. So to understand this university is, uh, you should understand that it was a reaction of Orthodox intellectuals against the Catholic Counter Reformation, but using Catholic means, using using the curricula of the Jesuit schools, using the texts of, of Catholic Church, and even mm, using the, the pole, pole, polemics in Latin. So it, it's very interesting, very paradoxical how, for example, in, in 17th century Ukrainian Orthodox priests were publishing their pamphlets against Catholics in Latin, in the language of, of the opponent. Another interesting thing is, is, of course, the Uniat Church, the Greek Catholic Church, which starts from the 16th century, which was supposed to unify Catholicism and Orthodoxy. It created a separate church, of course, for the uh, Orthodox of Kiev. Uh, at that time, there were, of course, traitors, but gradually it turned out to be one of these, uh, one of these elements of Ukrainian identity, especially in the Western Ukraine. So to sum it up, we have at least five, uh, five uh, Christian churches in Ukraine at that very moment because we do have Catholics in the West. We have, um, we have um, Orthodox. Uh, we have Union units. We have Moscow Patriarchate and uh, Patriarchate of Kiev. So it's full already. And we also have another, the last one, uh, Autocephalic, I guess. Yes. We, so we so just to to make it clear, we have Roman Catholic Church which is uh, not that numerous. We have Greek Catholics, the Uniats, who are subordinate to the Pope but have the Orthodox Rite rituals. We have Orthodox Church, which became uh, close to Constantinople, what we are now calling the Orthodox Church of Ukraine's Orthodox uh, Orthodox Church. Church of Ukraine, the Petseu. Mm, after so-called Thomas. Yeah. Yes, uh, we still have the Orthodox Church uh, linked to Moscow Patriarchy, And the very important uh, event right now, very important trend, is that uh, the the faithful of this church increasingly uh, deny their uh, willingness to be with Moscow. Because this church, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of Moscow Patriarchy, was the most the biggest soft power element, soft power instrument for the Russians. But it's even more more strict here, saying that uh, Moscow was using this church for many years already, at least for eight years already, just to to push the message of the true church, not the true Russian church here in, in Ukraine. And they were using it literally when, for example, there were um, 
there were placing internally displaced people from Donetsk and Luhansk back in 2014 and 15. It was a place of propaganda, of Russian propaganda. They were saying that Ukrainians are Nazis and that they are killing people and all this kind of all this kind of bullshit. So, and today, what is important, you maybe read already in news in the news um, in last weeks that. Um, Svetogirsk Lavra, Slavra in Svetogirsk, was shelled by the Russian army. And um, not only faithful people of this church are turning to Kiev now, but also some monks and some some religious, I mean, some some people from this, uh, uh, this church is turning to, to, to Ukraine because they do understand what does it really mean, I mean, r- Russian politics and Russian war. Yes, uh, and of course there are another other elements. Protestant churches very important, and uh, for example, they, they have been very active in the volunteer movement back in from 2014. I re- we remember talking to them many times. Of course, Judaism. Judaism is a, is a very important element, and Jewish culture, both in the Western Ukraine, in in, in Central Ukraine, we have multiple synagogues. Of course, it suffered a lot, both during the First World War, during the pogroms here in Eastern Europe, including on Ukrainian territories, and of course, during the Holocaust. But today, this kind of interest, this mutual interest between the Jewish culture and Ukrainian culture is very strong, and I hope we will talk about it later. And of course, Muslims. So the Crimean Tatars have become a very important element of Ukrainian political nations since the occupation of Crimea, and therefore the Muslim culture is also very important. Let's move forward. Uh, the third element which we would like to stress is kind of a bottom-up nature of Ukrainian culture. So Ukrainian culture has not been very strong in, in this aristocratic element, right? So the elites uh, in many aspects of its history were choosing other identities. The yeah, Polish why? identity... A Lithuanian identity, a Russian identity, etc. And it's clear from the historical point of view because elites for many centuries were not Ukrainian because Ukraine for some centuries in, his, in its history didn't have a kind of statehood. So this is clear why they were either Polish or Russian or whatever. But um, this is important now and this is important for, for modern democracy because really really Ukrainian culture, when we see for for, for, for from the foundation, I mean, talking about people like Taras Shevchenko, yeah, who is a real voice from the people. So he was a simple peasant, simple, who was born in a very simple and poor even family, and he became the national founder, so the poet who founded the nation in a way. And this is something um, outstanding and something not, not, not at all similar to what we see in, in Russia in, or in any other European country. So this, uh, this uh, popular core, this popular, how to say, um, trend... This is linked to the popular linked, yeah, culture, it's, it's right? linked. Yeah, this is something typical for Ukraine. The constant link to the folk, folkloric culture. And interestingly, we see it in the 19th century, obviously, but we see it now in the 21st century. When you look at Ukrainian music, and uh, at Ukraine World, we published several articles on Ukrainian folk music, so you can go to our website and, and, and look for the groups, for the music bands. And they are so fantastic, they are so interesting. So they're using this folkloric element together with this very, very modernist element. And... Uh, 
every time when, for example, the foreign powers, primarily Russia, was trying to cut Ukrainian aristocracy, Ukrainian intelligentsia, other, other to assimilate it or to destroy it that we have seen in the 19th and the 20th century, somehow this popular element, this you know, bottom-up culture helped Ukrainian culture to survive and to regenerate. The fourth element is, of course, the European influences. So European uh, influences have been very important for Ukrainian culture for, for, for many epochs. We can, see, we can talk about the ancient, ancient Greek, ancient Latin influences. If you go to Ukrainian Baroque, to the philosophers like Skovoroda, you will feel how this big element of Latin culture like Cicero or Latin rhetorics or uh, ancient ethics, Stoic ethics, were influencing the, the Ukrainian thinking at the time during the 18th century. If you look at uh, our, you know, texts of in the first text in the one of the first texts in the popular language, it was uh, an attempt to rewrite the Virgil's Aeneid by Ivan Kotlarevsky. So you can imagine that uh, people who were creating this kind of a parody on Virgil's Aeneid were thinking in these terms of, you know, uh, Latin poems or Greek poems. Uh, for many of these people of the 19th century who were, you know, regenerating Ukrainian culture, this, the, these texts like Virgil or Homer, the, the Iliad or Odyssey were very important texts. We should always remember this. Or maybe let's talk about lesser Ukraine, who is a female figure in, in Ukrainian liter literature canon. So she was extremely well educated. So and what you can find in her um, dramas, you, you can al al always find these ancient uh, stories, uh, all these European uh, cultures starting from ancient Greece and Rome and almost nothing from contemporary Ukraine. And she was uh, quite often criticized for that. But uh, she spoke many, 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 really many foreign languages and she was able to read um, in exotic languages as well. And this is, uh, she contradicts this um, point we made about Shevchenko and about this uh, bottom-up bottom uh, Ukrainian culture. But uh, we do see that in Ukrainian, in Ukrainian culture you have these two components, this, this trend coming from from popular, from folks culture, but at the same time, this aristocratic component is also present. Uh, we invite you to read what Lesya Krinka wrote. She's extremely important and extremely powerful uh, writer and a female one. You can difficultly find such a strong figure in any other European literature. So is a female writer who is really one of the founders of uh, modern Ukrainian literature and um, she's, her dramas are something incredible. She's talking about ancient Greece, about Scotland and about ancient Rome and about uh, many other things. About first Christians. First Christians, yeah, as well. Things, yeah. So she's um, mastering all this uh, European uh, history, I would say, and trying to tell, to, to deliver, I would say, important messages for Ukraine, but not directly, but using all these European... Uh, Mm, what code so European tradition so this is extremely important and and they live not almost the same time you know, so in some some um, 30 years of difference and this is Ukrainian culture in 19th century it's quite rich one 
Exactly, and I think I personally think that Lesya Ukrainka is the biggest, the, mo- the most genius Ukrainian writer, and it's also very important to have a female writer as the top Ukrainian writer. But coming next to the, our next point, I would say that one of the very particular elements of Ukrainian culture is the very interesting combination between modernity and tradition. So today, in today's world, we see this clash between modernity and tradition, neoconservatism against neo-modernism or neoliberals, etc. In Ukraine, there is this clash, I would say it's, of course, it's also present, but not to such an extent, because all our modernists were at the same time traditionalists. People like Lesya Ukrainko, people like Olha Kobelansko, people like... Uh, people like uh, Mikhailo Kutsubinsky, or even Taras, Taras Shevchenko were modernists, but they were modernizing Ukrainian culture by going deeper into, into Ukrainian yeah, roots. And maybe uh, the way to explain it, that you should distinguish between the form, which could be archaic or traditional, and uh, function. Function could be a modernizing one. So they were using sometimes archaic forms and traditional forms, but they were in the spirit, they were, they were uh, modernizing and moving forward of this culture. This is important. And you can see that in in many many examples, even in Malevich, Malevich who is, uh, we'll talk about him later in this uh, conversation, but Malevich who was using, uh, who is an avant-gardist, so he's the, the modern of the modern, but at the same time he has extremely deep and important truths in, in traditional culture. So we are moving to another element, Ukrainian avant-garde uh, of the 1910s, 1920s, the early 20th century. Today, in many museums in which you see the so-called Russian avant-garde, um, we can assure you that many of these artists are Ukrainians or Belarusians, for example. Of course, some of them are Russians, but Russians, again, they try to expropriate what they had in the Russian Empire and Soviet Union. And let's talk about Malevich. He's maybe an icon of this Russian avant-garde and has been presented as such for many, many decades with his uh, black square, etc., etc. Malevich was born in Kiev, right? And he was Ukraine. He was his Polish roots. Uh, his family was Catholic. And he's um, underlined in his text that his identity is Ukrainian one. And when you read his autobiography, written by himself in '35, if I'm not mistaken, he states that his uh, his love for art comes from Ukrainian village, and from what he's seen in Ukrainian villages when he was a child, and he was distinguishing between Ukrainian peasants and. Uh, and in people from big cities, and this popular folk art, in fact, what was maybe the first uh, source of inspiration for him. I mean, color, I mean, form, and this simplistic form, which was becoming in, um, popular due to uh, due to fauvism in Paris, and all the things they are linked in Malevich work in, to, to to popular culture to popular, I mean, to folks culture, to culture of Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian uh, village. And he spent uh, um, 70 years, 17 years of his first years of his life in Ukraine, then he moved to Russia. But he never denied this influence. And he even highlighted this influence of Ukrainian colors and Ukrainian culture on what he was doing. We can talk about many other people, for example, Sonia Delaunay, who was uh, born in today's Ukraine, but uh, in, Odessa. in Odessa, but uh, spent her life in, 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 in France and has become one of the 
leading uh, leading artists of uh, French avant-garde, together with her husband uh, Robert Delaunay. But she also appreciated these Ukrainian colors very much. Yeah, and what what she wrote in her text is that all her colors. We know Sonia Delaunay is known for her colors, for this simultaneism uh, coming from simultane. And uh, it's about colors and about uh, placing different colors, bright colors, uh, at the same time on the same in the same place. And she wrote in her autobiography that it's also due to Ukrainian to, to her souvenirs from her Ukrainian childhood. Mm, so this is very important for for us. There were also other people, other women, like this Alexandra Exter and many, many, many others. Archipinga also coming from Ukraine. So what you should know when you go to European museums and you see Nosa, it sounds Russian, and you read Russian avant-garde. So you'd better go to Wikipedia, at least to Wikipedia, to see if he's really or she's really Russian or maybe Ukrainian, because many of them, they are not Russian simply, they are Ukrainians. And they were admitting the Ukrainian origins, and basically many of them, like Malevich, were destroyed, annihilated by Russian Bolshevism. The next element is very important to, we would like to stress, uh, the, is Ukrainian, the leftist element of Ukrainian culture, because there is a stereotype that Ukrainians are nationalists, that, that there is, you know, far-right uh, movement, etc., uh, etc. Et of course, these elements also exist, but you should understand that Ukrainian far-right nationalism is a product of the 30s and the 40s of the 20th century. They kind of, some elements of it has been revived now, but let us remind that far-right parties never, basically in the past uh, years, never entered the parliament. They had about 2% of the vote. Uh, but it's important to understand that the very big amount of Ukrainian culture was actually leftist. Uh, so people were inspired by these leftist ideas, by, by the ideas of emancipation of workers and peasants and proletariat, etc., uh, we, and we, women as and well. women as well. So when we talk about such people as, as Drahomanov, who were the key Ukrainian intellectual of the 19th century, so, such people as Ivan Franko, such people uh, as Lesya Ukrinka that you'd mentioned, and then what we call the executed Renaissance, those people of the 20s who were who were mostly killed in, in the 30s, people like Khvilovi, people like uh, like Les Kurbas, people like uh, Mykola Kulish and many, many others, they were leftists mm -hmm. and they were uh, thinking in terms of leftist culture, but they were presenting, they were proposing some other version of the leftism, other version of the Marxism than the Stalinism at the same time, and therefore they were annihilated. Yes, this is this leftist component is very important in Ukrainian culture in the uh, 1920s, 30s. But what we've seen later in Stalin's politics, the way raising this national component in Ukrainian culture. And then we had this totalitarian, totalitarian regime for many decades. And uh, what we see now is the kind of also reaction to this Soviet, uh, Soviet decades and this leftist uh, ideology. So if many Ukrainians uh, can unable to, to to talk seriously about left ideology today. It's also because we had this we have these seventy years of totalitarian ideology, leftist one. So we are not in balance now. So, but um, do read Khvilovi and all these people. I mean, Khvilovi, the very talented genius, maybe right of the beginning of the twentieth century, one of. Um, 
maybe the bright, one of the brightest one. They believed uh, in left idea. They believed in communism back in the 20s, and uh, they also paid the price for for the disillusion they have. And but the, their uh, version of communism was different than the Russian version of communism because it's it's a line going from Drahomanov through Venichenko to people like Hulovy. It's again a bottom-up communism. It's an idea that we we should rather work on this cooperation between workers, etc. It's not an idea of di- dicta- di- dictatorship of proletariat. Let's move very quickly to the three uh, other elements. The the eighth and the ninth is basically these other religions, and we stress the importance of the Jewish culture and Crimean Tatar culture, the Muslim culture. So the Jewish culture, of course, there are there are many writers whom you know. For example, they're coming from Ukraine. There is a Nobel Prize laureate uh, Agnon who was. Uh, active in Buchach in, in the western Ukraine and you still in Buchach you still have at this courtyard Agnon courtyard you can go there there are people like Joseph Roth uh, the famous uh, writer from uh, uh, from Brody if I'm not mistaken who has written this famous novel about the end of Austro-Hungarian Habsburg Empire the Radetzky Marsh there is of course Paul Celan this famous poet from Chernovitz Uh, who basically the German language poet who was you know reflecting upon the horrors of of Holocaust. There also a painter Alexander Roitbut who died just one one year ago. Yeah, exactly. Very not one, not even one not year. Even in when, the yeah, summer, the summer, summer, previous so, summer, several, several months ago. Who was also who is also Jewish and he lived in Odessa and maybe one of the brightest brightest artists of the contemporary Ukraine. It's so sad that he he dies. He was quite young. He was fifty nine years old, and some other brilliant examples. Of there Jewish are there people. are still uh, you know many others like Mat- Matvey Weisberg or. Mm-hmm. Or uh, poet so, Boris Khersonsky. So this Jewish culture—it's something very common for Ukraine. In, in you can find it in any region. It's not only in the West or somewhere in South in Odessa. Odessa is, has very strong links to Jewish culture as well to the Jewish humor. Um, so yeah. In also Ukraine. Dnipro, also those shtetls in the Western Ukraine, of course. Uh, in many of them, the memory is erased, unfortunately, due to. First, due to the atrocities of the two world wars, due to the Holocaust, but also due to certain kind of amnesia and during Soviet epoch, unfortunately. And uh, 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 we should not also de- erase the Ukrainian responsibility for this erasing memory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's important that in the in the past years there was there is a real interest to this Jewish. There are initiatives like Jewish Ukrainian dialogue and and, mm-hmm. and all the rest. So we should also remember that. And Crimean Tatars, an important people in Ukraine, and politically very much important after Russian annexation of Crimea in 2014. So now you have a lot of a, it's a really very active cultural community. I mean, Crimean Tatars, people who live now in in Lviv or in Kiev, who left Crimea because of security reasons, but some families still live in Crimea. And what we di- we discovered for ourselves is Crimea. Crimean culture, there is um, competitions, cultural competitions for translations, etc., etc. So this is also a kind of modern project today. What we see, this is not a traditional 
only traditional cultures. They are trying to modernize this Crimean Tatar culture, which is has links to to their religion in, in in a way, to Muslims. So this is a different facet of what Ukrainian culture is today. So it is not at all this um, this homogenic and you know simple culture. Let me refer to our podcast about Crimean Tatars and Crimea. We made before the war a podcast with Rory Finin, a brilliant researcher from. Uh, United Kingdom from Cambridge. Uh, he's heading the Cambridge Ukrainian Studies. So we've talked about his latest book about Crimean Tatar deportation, but also about the mu- multiple links between Crimean Tatar and Ukrainian culture. And the last element is uh, probably something that encompasses all that. It's plurality. Plurality Ukrainian culture. You can see that it can be Ukrainian language and Russian language and Crimean Tatar language and also a culture in Yiddish or a culture in Latin or in Polish uh, traditionally. Right, if you if we go back to centuries, it is very plural in terms of religions. All the Abrahamic religions are here. Monotheist religions are here, with different denominations, with different uh, d- different versions. And uh, geographically, it's very plural, very interesting. Ethnically, it's very plural, very interesting. Politically as well. So uh, we would like to uh, invite you to study more about Ukrainian culture. Uh, believe me, there is a lot of good literature in English. Uh, so you you just you just should should search. It's if you don't know Ukrainian language or Russian language, it doesn't mean that you you will not find information about it. There are lots of good things in English. You just have to search in your libraries in in the Internet. Mm -hmm. And let's end up saying that, yeah, this culture, Ukrainian culture, is something really extremely diverse, it's extremely interesting, and it explains, once again, uh, what we are fighting for today in this war, this cruel war against Russia, which Russia started against us. So we are fighting for this culture, for this possibility to be ourselves, to be different, to be diverse, to be, to, be, to speak different languages, to, to use different traditions, to have different religions, but to live in peace and in tolerance each to other. Yes, this was the Explaining Ukraine podcast, our series, uh, uh, since the war started, we st- we started a series together with Ukraine Crisis Media Center. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, I'm chief editor of ukraineworld.org and analytics director at Internews Ukraine. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine. If you want to support us, you can do it on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.